oh, what a like what movie did we do last? I'm like the like the Prowler feels like so long ago for some I know. reason. I don't know if it's just because this last week felt so long, but just like I was like, wait, the Prowler was our most recent <laughs> one. I know. Yeah, like in a weird way, almost like Halloween three even somehow seems like closer than the Prowler. Like Yeah, exactly. Enter if you dare this ghastly conversation of teens fraught with despair and recent lacerations. Final girl, chase after her, don't let her get away. But first, the slumber podcast massacre with TNA. Welcome to Slumber Podcast Massacre with TNA. That's Tim. That's Andy. And this is a podcast about horror. Every week, Tim and I are going to jump in and we're going to talk about a different movie uh, in the horror genre from the well-known iconic classics down to that rare gem whispering at you without moving its lips from the back shelf of your local video store. This week, Tim and I are going to talk about the 1978 drama, thriller, horror, (laughs) magic starring anthony hopkins tim let me ask you this do you think magic is more for adults or for children Um, or does it not have do you not have to draw the line well i would say that it's more for adults now because i don't think children see much of it not compared to when i was a kid and which was about the same time that you were a kid. Yeah. And do you remember there used to be primetime magic specials on TV? Absolutely. Like David Copperfield, um, other magicians <laughs> um, would have. Penn and Teller, Penn and Teller. Yeah, yeah, there That's you go. how I got into Penn and Teller. <laughs> right. But yeah, they would have like, it was like the big deal Saturday night, seven o'clock, you know, primetime two hour long magic specials. And it wasn't like all the time, but maybe a couple times a year, there would be something like that. And so I just grew up with that and was fascinated by it uh, from the very beginning. And I think part of that is I've always loved anything that showed the extreme of human potential. And I've always wanted to have superpowers like ever (laughs) since i was a kid i don't care i don't care if just like a laser shot out of my pinky and all it was was like a cool like pen light or something like a like a laser pointer like that would be enough for me just some kind of cool i don't think there's a kid our age who didn't try like picking a pencil up with the force or something like that yeah like yeah we grew up just like maybe it's possible right yeah like if i try hard enough you know Um, but, but no, I, I looked at magic that way. Like, even if I knew as I got older that obviously it is just technique and hours and hours and hours of practice still to me, I was, I was amazed by like kind of in the same way that I would be amazed by like, I don't know, a a gymnast, like an Olympic gymnast, like these people have trained themselves to do something that is way beyond what normal people can do. So I don't know. I could say it's for kids or adults, but for me, I've loved it all the way through. I get it. That's fine. I, I'm kind <laughs> How of about you? How about you? <laughs> Here's my thing on magic. I am at the point where 
I'm like you, I appreciate it. Like I know a lot of technique and a lot of time uh, and dedication goes into it. It is, it's exciting to watch because your brain, your brain as, as we as humans are pattern recognizers, when we see something out of the ordinary like that, our brain, like we cannot figure it out. So there's something exciting about like, just the how, how did you do that? But the thrill of, you know, I'm not at the point of there's no other explanation other than it's magic, you know. But I still feel there are people who look at card tricks and like that who are just flabbergasted by how it's possible. But I, as soon as you understand, oh, like you can gain the skill of placing a card in a deck of cards as soon as you understand that skill is possible, anything you can apply to that skill just becomes that, you know? So anytime you can just recognize, no matter how many cards they're placing, just knowing that's a skill, I'm just like, okay, you just practice more. It's like the guy who can, you know, dribble the basketball faster between his legs than the other guy. Like he's just, he's, they're doing the same thing. Just, he's put a little more effort into it, but in, in all essence, you're just bouncing a ball. You know, you know what I'm talking about. No, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, I get you. And you're not you're, you knowing you. You're not really one for pomp and circumstance. I mean, like you're you you you, you don't really go in for a lot of that. And a lot is, of go go keep going keep going. But a lot of a lot of magicians now, guys like David Blaine and stuff like that, have tried to kind of take that out of magic and make it more viable for like uh, today's youth or younger people. But me personally, I do like that schmaltzy cheese mustachioed, you know, like like uh, glittering capes and stuff. Like I go in for all of that stuff. Like that, I just love it. Yeah. But I could to see me those- that is. They have to dress it up because at its essence, I'm just, just doing a, just doing a sleight of hand here, you know, just cut a piece <laughs> of rope. That's really what I'm doing. But if I add smoke and mirror, you know, the illusion, it's, it's a very meta because magic is just an illusion that there's something exciting happening. But you know, what's ironic about it though, is that if there was like, just for a second, pretend that there was a guy that really was magical. Like he, it'd be a really hard sell for him to convince anybody because the more that he would try to be like, no, I'm doing real magic here. It's like, yeah, that's what they all say. Yeah. But um, so who knows? I would get the angriest because we, I, we have a friend who is into magic and that's fine. Um, And he's he's talented. He's very talented. He's a, he's a, He's very talented in other things, decent magician, but he loves, he loves the art. He's very knowledgeable of it. He already has a lot of like cool collectibles and things like that, but you know, he'll do like a trick for me. And, and this is the part that really drives me nuts that magicians do where, you know, he'll do a trick and like, he'll like, just for example, there was one where he literally like put a card in a box and then it changed to another card I had picked earlier or whatever. And so I was like, oh, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. I'm like, how does that box work, though? And he's just like, what do you mean? I'm like, oh, okay. Like, how does the box, like, or, you know, how does this, is there something that slides in it? Or, you know, is there like a mirror that tilts and that's how, like, the card changes? And he's just like, I don't understand what you mean. I'm like, I'm a fucking adult. Stop acting me like I don't, like, I know it's a trick. (laughs) I'm not, like, fooled by it. 
but see, I don't, I don't, I go in, I go in for the, uh, for the whole thing, the mystery, the fun of it. I don't, it's like, I know what you're saying. You and, and that too. And, I wish I could do that. Cause right. we, uh, let me tell you a quick story and then I'll let you talk. We, on the other side of that, we, he took us to the magic castle in Los Angeles. Um, uh, it's a, it's a big deal. They're very pomp and circumstance. You got to dress up. It's another illusion to make itself seem more important than it really is. But anyway, we, we went and saw, you just go in and you see these little magic shows and this guy was just doing a simple, like cup and ball trick, right? Where he, it looked like he would like take the ball out, but then oh, the, uh, the ball was back in the cup. Very rudimentary. This 26 year old girl sitting next to our other friend was flabbergasted like out of her seat like no way what what i'm like you gotta be kidding me how do you get to be an adult and are this amazed by this level of magic but at the same time i wish i could enjoy it like that yeah and i and i i I, like i said i know you i i mean i've seen plays and performances with you before i know you're not like like if we go to see a stage play you're not going to stand up and be like that's not how you really talk that's not who you really are that's not your real name uh you know like you you are able to enjoy a story you are able to enjoy art you know that i i know that but i i don't know i and you're not the only one that's like that. You're not the only friend of ours that that goes about magic in that way. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I think I do turn into that five-year-old watching that David Copperfield special when I see it, even in at my advanced age now. Um, I don't know. I think I just turn that part of my brain off and I'm just... I have no desire to know how it, I mean, I, I'm going to say that, like, how'd you do that? Of course, I'm. you can't help but say that. But um, but I don't know. I just, I go with it. I love it. I love every single thing about magic. I could sit and watch it. Unlike ventriloquism, I could sit and watch magic tricks for forever. <laughs> they are an odd pair, aren't they? But they are paired up a lot, which is weird. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. And you know where they're paired up? that really jumps out the 1978 movie magic starring Anthony Hopkins. Ah, yes. Transition. (laughs) Um, So yeah, this, this is a world where, and I think you're, as you're saying, like in the eighties, yeah, magic was huge. So this movie is in 78 magic seems to be very big. There is a lot of like, Oh, you're going to get TV specials and things like that. They're still talking about it. So let's, uh, let's jump into this. Let's jump into this fun little film. This is directed by Richard Attenborough. Do you know who Richard Attenborough is? Um, you know what? I, <laughs> that's one of those names that it's like, um, man, I, I better know who this is. <laughs> right. And cause I, I feel like that's expected of me, but I didn't, I'll be perfectly honest. I did not know anything other than I was supposed to know his name. Right. No. And you're right. That is one of those names. And I was like, I was familiar. He was a director and like had done important stuff. And it was like, I feel like I should know his work. Our audiences will probably know him as uh, Hammond, the owner of Jurassic Park. Yeah. That's, and that's the when guy I've, who directed this. Right. And the Spare No Expense guy. Yes. Yeah. And, when no I, expense. and when I found that out, even still, I felt like, I feel like I should know, I feel like that shouldn't be the number one thing that right. I know him for. <laughs> it was like, he did more movies? Right. Right. Yeah. Apparently he did. He did a lot. And um, I don't know, would you, 
I, and cause I, obviously I haven't gained perfect knowledge of this guy since I realized that I needed to know him better. So just tell me, is he known more as a director or an actor? Uh, that's a great question. I, I think if it's one of those bridge thing, I think he's just known as a arts guy now, you know, because I think he directed a lot and then did acting more after because I don't think he's directed a lot recently. You know, a lot right. of his stuff was 70s, maybe 80s. Yeah, I Great just question, though. Yeah, this isn't a Richard Attenborough podcast. I don't know. I think it's just one of those names that sounds fancy. <laughs> You know, (laughs) it's like, damn it. I, I, you know, I want to be able to throw that name around because it sounds so good. I should just learn something about the guy first. Yeah. You can't be a bad actor with the name Richard Attenborough. No. Right. Yes. It just sounds pompous to say an English actor as well. Like you had, you know. Yeah. The fact that it doesn't have sir in front of it just feels weird. (laughs) Like, is that, yeah, it's missing something. Yeah. He wasn't knighted, man. Should be. Tim, we did lose a, a, a night recently, Sir Sean Connery. We did. And also, uh, a little spoiler on when we're recording this. Did you hear Alex Trebek died today? Yeah, like literally, like I just found uh-huh. that out. Yeah. And, um, you know, it's one of those things. It's It's okay to be sad about the death of people that you like. But I don't understand the reactions of people on Facebook where it's like, no. Right. Like he, like he was Sean 80. Connery. Yeah. And Sean Connery oh, was 90. Yeah. <laughs> like any wishing any more life on that man is only going to do him more harm. Like let him die. It's cruel. Yeah. Please die. Sean Connery die already. <laughs> but no, but I, I love that guy. I say that in jest. I love yeah. Sean Connery. He is an absolute fucking badass. And what I didn't, I didn't know that guy was six, two. He's tall. Yeah. I mean, he's a big dude. Um, yeah, no. That fantastic. is taller than I would expect. I would suspect tall, but yeah. Yeah. I but mean, six um, two to me is short, so I don't know. And, Ale- and Alex Trebek, like, you got to love that dude. Like, I mean, the banter with the contestants before round two was always cringy, but that's only because he's Canadian. <laughs> so small yeah. talk from a Canadian is bound to be weird. He's just being polite. Yeah. Anyway, back to this movie. Uh, this was written by uh, William Goldman, who wrote, it's based on his novel, and they like bought the rights for a million bucks, but they were like, that, that includes you writing the screenplay, buddy. He's like, no problem. And then it stars Anthony Hopkins, Anne Margaret, and Burgess Meredith. I love this cast. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's not only a, a great cast to start with, but it's some of the best work from this cast that they might have ever done. I agree. Or at least and it's no right one up. talks about it. I feel no, and because you, I mean, had you heard of this movie before I brought it up? I had literally never even heard of this movie to wow. the point of thinking like just trying to go back in the, in the memory banks of, of somehow I must've heard of this. There's no way with these stars, it's, kind of a horror movie um i i would have heard of this literally had zero recollection of this when you first brought it up yeah it's crazy because it's it's a great cast i think it's well made um it's not like it was ignored when it came out anthony hopkins got nominated for a golden globe for it um but it's just kind of this 
forgotten movie, which is weird. Should we do Nan Sum and then jump into it? Yeah, I'm ready. I'm excited. Right. <clears throat> Here's Nan Sum. Anthony Hopkins is Corky, a failed magician who broadens his act by introducing a ventriloquist dummy named Fats and finds himself on the cusp of stardom. Worried about what his medical exam would reveal about himself, Corky retreats to his hometown and rekindles a love affair with his high school crush. But when her husband returns from a business trip, Corky hopes he can keep his mental health and fats in check. There you go. Yeah, I, I tell you, it takes a lot of balls to name your lead character Corky. Oh, man. <laughs> But you know what? I just I want to get this out of the way because it's something that I want to know if I'm way off base or not. But just in speaking of those characters that you mentioned, do you think there's something to the names of Corky and Fats? Because Corky implies like cork comes from bark, which right. on a tree and fats and fat humans are made up of fats. So do you think it's kind of the juxtaposition oh. of who's really the dummy and who's really the human? The, the dummy is called fats and the human is called Corky. Interesting. Right. Uh, yeah, that I did not think about that. I, I can't think that's not intentional, but excellent. Yeah. And it, it literally came from me being like, how do you choose Corky? How do you, how do you choose that as your lead character's name? Yeah, and, and it's not that, super obvious. I mean, it sounds like a performance name. Right. So you get away with it that way because um, you're a magician and you have to do something to make yourself appealing because you're doing magic. <laughs> uh, just going to shoot that magic this whole episode. We've established that magic may not be real. Maybe. Yeah, you're leaning that way. Um. That, that there is some quote about if you brought, you know, the, just technology we don't understand is just considered magic or something like that. It's a far more eloquent quote and makes more sense. But yeah, you could say that. Like yeah. if you went if you went back to somebody in the 1800s and said, we're going to build a ship that's going to go land on the moon up there. They would that would that sounds like magic to them. Yeah. They'd be so, like, yeah, like, the moon. Right. <laughs> <laughs> No, they right. just, they knew what the moon was, but, <laughs> um, but yeah. Um, so never mind your time travel technology. The, <laughs> they're not ready for you to even get on that, on board with that yet. Right. So um, this, this movie, uh, I mean, just, just to, I guess, dive right into kind of a, a general overview of, of really any discussion of this movie. And, and there is plenty not a ton, but there's plenty written about this movie and every single one of the uh, reviews or, or commentaries on it always speaks to whether or not it is indeed a horror movie. So yeah. I wanted to ask you that right off the bat, just before we get into the specifics, do you think that magic is a horror film? It's a good question. And it's something I was asking myself while I was watching it. Cause I mean, it, it all boils down to how you define, I guess, what a horror movie is. Uh, there are a lot of benchmarks you can use. Uh, how many people are killed? How are they killed? Uh, in this movie, those are relatively simple ways, and it has a low body count. I think there's a lot of, if you uh, grade something on an esoteric scale, there's a lot of horror about mental health and loss and coping with grief, you know, which are not also not uncommon themes in a lot of the movies we've covered already. Right. Um, 
So like if, but if I were to just say, oh, if I were to put this on a list of horror movies, no, there's probably a lot I would put on it, but is it horror-ish? Yeah, absolutely. Well, now here's the interesting thing about that as we kind of get into the, to the history of the movie is that what surprises me is whether you want to call it a horror movie or you want to call it a psychological drama, uh, which I'd probably lean a little bit more towards or a psychological thriller. Yeah. Um, it's also very well made, which takes it a lot out of some horror circles. Like, so some cinematography going on here. Well, exactly. And that's that's exactly where I'm going with it. There were a lot of huge names for a quote unquote horror or even if you want to go with the thriller uh, mantle, um, a lot of really huge names attached to this movie as it's getting going. And yeah. you build it as a horror movie. Oh yeah, there's a lot of suspense in this movie for sure. They built it. They build it as a horror movie so much so that the um, the television networks had so many complaints about the TV spot, the TV trailer that they were forced to pull it from the air. Oh, that really? Because it was the, too yeah. scary. It, yes, it was. Oh, ter- wow. It was terrifying people. And it's not a shot from the movie. It's just, have you seen that this trailer before? I don't know. Explain it. It's just, I didn't watch any recently, but I had a long time ago. Okay. It's just fats. And he recites kind of a pretty awesome little poem. It's a, it's a very close zoom in on fats, the, the dummy. And he just says, uh, abracadabra. Uh, I sit on his knee presto changeo. And now he is me. Hocus pocus. We take her to bed. Magic is fun. We're dead. That's incredible. And what yeah. a great man sum. <laughs> yeah. Jesus. And, and it rhymes. And it um, rhymes. That guy so, put some effort into that. So I watched it and it and it is creepy because ventriloquist dummies are creepy. Um, let's just face it, they mm-hmm. they are. And um, so, yeah, it was kind of like this slow zoom in on the dummy's face. It is a very creepy looking doll. The it head, is. The head is very bulbous. Like uh, there are a lot of ventriloquist dummies that are just proportioned. OK, this one, the proportions are off where the head is huge. The eyes are bulging, which is very effective. Like, I'm glad they did that. It would not be as intimidating like as like that doll from the boy did you see yeah. that? Oh, yeah. Oh, good, good Lord. Well, like that, you, that not intimidating. This big bulbous head, I'm not sure if it's real or not. Very frightening. Well, you're onto something there because Anthony Hopkins, in preparation for the role, took the dummy home with him to just kind of rehearse and get used to it and play with it a little bit. And then a few days later, calls the ventriloquist expert that they had hired to be, uh, you know, an advisor on the movie. And told him that if he did not come over there that instant and take this dummy out of his house, that he was going to throw it into the canyon (laughs) off of his backyard. Like he literally was that freaked out. And Richard Attenborough had to go to Anthony Hopkins house and talk him off the ledge because he was so freaked out by just this dummy sitting in his house. Like it was it's unnerving. And you're right. It is. It's creepy to look at. But somehow he got over that. Yeah, but I don't no. know. I don't know who designed it. I don't know if that was designed specifically or if that was just a prop. It is have. meant to look like him, which is where we get oh, into. Oh, it is. Yeah, 
Yeah, it, it will. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, they didn't do a great job. <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, it's 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 really stretching it to say that it's, you know, a replica of, of Anthony Hopkins. But um, but it is creepy. And like I was saying, so many people attached to this movie. You've got Roman Polanski interested in directing. You've got Steven Spielberg, who wanted um, De Niro. Yeah, wanted De Niro in it. Norman um, Jewison was going to do it. He wanted Nicholson. Oh, no, Which all know, would have been great casting. No, you know who it was. A, no, it was actually was it Jewison that wanted him. So I think I thought it was Jewison that wanted. Um, now this one I thought was cool. Wanted. Um, oh, who am I thinking of here? Uh, give me one sec. It is wanted Gene Wilder. Ooh, yeah. And um, and the thing was, now here's an interesting anecdote. The Gene Wilder was turned down by the uh, the producer, Joseph Levine. And Joseph Levine says that he turned him down because he didn't want any comedians to play the role. He wanted somebody, a straight actor. But there is an anecdote that the writer tells uh, where he took a quote unquote movie star, major movie star, to the producer's house and the producer ultimately said no to him because the, whoever that actor was would not share his joint with him. <laughs> like he was smoking a joint and he wouldn't share it with the, or he didn't offer it to the producer oh, and the God. producer thought that was rude. That's so he's like, worse. no. <laughs> so I don't know if Gene Wilder was that into weed, but I mean, it, it he was the, the one 70s. that was, yeah, he was the one that was turned down. So it's it's probably Gene Wilder was getting high wow. while meeting the producer, and the producer uh, didn't get offered the a toke, and and so he said, "Well, no. I'm glad it came down to Anthony Hopkins." So well, he's yeah. great. This was kind of he wasn't really a name yet or a big name. People people knew of him because he tells I I saw some interview that he did. Uh, and like he was like friends with Carol Burnett at this point, and like she was, he was his her favorite actor when they met. So huh. he'd obviously done some substantial work before this. He did a lot of shit with like Lawrence Olivier. I think he was his understudy in England during like in some Shakespeare runs. Well, that that could very well be because Lawrence Olivier was originally going to play the part that Burgess Meredith played. So there, that might he, I mean, it might have very well have been Olivier that suggested Hopkins. It, yeah. it could have been if they were that close. And the only reason why Olivier didn't do it is because he got sick, so he couldn't do it. So that's how they went. Thankfully, Thank to Burgess God. Meredith. Oh my God, Burgess Meredith is so good in this because I am so used to Burgess Meredith as the Penguin or. Uh, you know, Mick and Rocky and a lot of this. Ah, I'm intense. <laughs> ah, ah. And in this, it is so low key and confident and he's just so fucking mellow, but in charge, like he's that so much swagger and he's yes. the tiniest. He's barely bigger than the doll in this movie. <laughs> right. Right. And, you know, he's uh He's he's one of those guys that has so defined a role. I'm thinking specifically of of Mick and Rocky so much so that like we've talked about before with Tom Atkins, you know, when you have an actor who you love in a role, you don't want to see them play anybody else. You want to see them. You you just 
so connect that actor with that one iconic role that you just can't stand to watch him play anybody else. But I loved the fact that he was understated, like you're saying in this, and he does it seemingly effortlessly. He modeled the character after Swifty Lazar, who was uh, a Hollywood agent at the time. He he modeled his look. He shaved his head, um, kind of uh, like imitated his his personality and his vocal delivery um, and just absolutely nails the hell out of the part. And it's there are a lot of good performances in this movie. That was the one that I I would say that I enjoyed the most, whether it's the best performance in the movie. I, I mean, I, I would kind of say so, but it's certainly the one that I enjoyed watching him or the person on screen yes. the most easily. But he gets the benefit of also not having to carry it. You know, it's just like I get to come in, crush a couple scenes. Right. And leave as the most memorable thing in this. Well, the puppet's pretty memorable, but. Right. But no, but did you, you know, right, did you know that uh, uh, Swifty was uh, Richard Nixon's agent? No. Yeah. That's how the, the Frost Nixon interviews happened. Like he helped put those together. Oh, he was no shit. Nixon's agent. <laughs> I didn't know Nixon had it. He doesn't. Seem I like know it's weird. Kind of right? guy. But yeah, once you're done with that part and you're just booking interviews, you get an agent. Well, speaking of people who actually did have a lot to do and a lot of some big hills to climb in their performances and Margaret as the uh the high school sweetheart it wasn't even high school sweetheart it was just the girl that he pined over in high school yeah just a crush yeah and um she has to not only give a a you know whatever the part would require as far as an emotional performance but also has to believably portray someone who seemingly never gets tired of watching person a person do a ventriloquist act which I like it for five minutes and and that's it. That's all I can take. It's coolest part of your show, but when it's at dinner. Right. Exactly. And, and the thing is, it's like, I don't know if you were the same way, but I was literally watching scenes as the movie went on. And I'm like, okay, this is going to be the scene that she says enough with the dummy, put it down. Like I can't take it anymore, but she just puts that smile on her face and she just eating it up. She yeah. can't, you know, can't get enough. And, um, so God, God bless her for pulling that off because that's not an easy task. Uh, no, it's not. But yeah, she uh, she just brought a real genuineness um, to this part because she's just she plays because he. Um, I guess we should kind of set this up a little bit. Let's set up the movie just a little bit before we jump sure. into the characters. He he started as a magician kind of bombed his first time. And so we get a little, a little prologue about that. He's with his mentor. I don't know if it's a, it's like a father figure, but I don't think it's his dad. Uh, his name is Merlin. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, he's just like, you gotta, you gotta come up with some, you know, you gotta grab their attention. Right. So now it's like a year later and he's got the biggest act in New York. They want to put him on television, uh, but he's got to take this, um, you know, like a medical exam where they're going to make sure he's not going to have a heart attack or his mental facilities are okay. Uh, he doesn't think they are. So he's, we don't know that yet, but he's just like, look, you know, I just don't want to do the medical exam. And I think he's just a little afraid of uh, the success, everything coming at once. He's worried about his own prognosis is coming out. So he skips town. He goes to where he grew up. 
he goes to like a cabin. It's like a cabin his family went to, right? Yeah in, the, right? yeah, in the Catskills. Like they, they mentioned that he grew up in the Catskills. So yeah, he goes back home to sort of that rural area. Yeah. And there's this one woman running it. And this is uh, Peggy Ann Snow, played by Ann Margaret. And she's just kind of running it with her husband. He's on a business trip. And so that's where he's staying. He just goes to stay there, like kind of an artist's retreat. Like, I'm here to clear my head. And I mean, he's essentially running from his problems as well. Right. Uh, but he doesn't tell anyone he's going there. He pays the cab guy. Uh, it was fun to see. He's uh, that guy's name is Jerry Hauser. He was in like Slapshot. Uh, he's he great. Was, yeah, he's great. He's uh, he's one of those guys where I've seen him in a couple things from like the seventies, uh, and then he just never materialized. But I liked him in, in nearly everything I saw. He yeah, he really? ended up doing like remember uh, in the nineties, like they really tried reviving the Brady Bunch. Oh, and had yeah. those he played like Jan or Marsha's husband, I think. Oh, really? That guy hooked up with Marsha. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, and he's yeah. just a real down to I mean, he's just got a small scene, but he's super down to earth, super relatable. And uh yeah, really, really nice little little uh, bit part there. It was really yeah. good. All the bit parts in this are great. Oh, yeah, we should have mentioned the guy who comes from the network to check Corky out, David Ogden steers from uh from MASH. Yes, yep. Uh, which I'm like, oh, have I ever seen this guy in something other than Matt? <laughs> the answer is no. <laughs> um, but yeah, and Ed Lauder, we'll get to him uh, a little bit later. Um, but yeah, all the, all yes. the bit parts are great. So he goes, yeah, you, and and Corky goes on, like you said, like an artist retreat, you know, to clear his head. And it just so happens that Peggy is right smack dab in the middle of a, of a kind of passionless marriage um, mm-hmm. where she's sort of, kind of distance herself from her husband who also went to school with them and uh, was kind of more of like the good looking popular guy, or at least we're given to believe at one point. Yeah. It said, he asked, does he still look like James Dean? And please just look up Ed Lauder and uh, (laughs) you'll, you'll know how crazy that. that How she, how she didn't immediately respond with, did he ever? (laughs) Right. Like that, that I I don't know, but, (laughs) but yeah, so he, you know, things are kind of set up pretty nicely for Corky at this point because he is getting away the, the girl that he's always had this, this crush on and pine for all these years just happens to be in a sort of like joyless marriage. So the setup is really nice for him to sort of connect to something wholesome and real, which is really what he's, what he's searching for. Plus, I think they play their relationship out pretty well because she just checks him into the hotel and he goes in and he's talking to Fats. He's like, she didn't recognize me. I was hoping she would. And then as she's returning to her house, she's saying to herself, like, he didn't recognize me. So there's obviously, you know, they both still kind of hold this thing. A lot of playfulness here. I liked it a lot. No, you're in. And I I am in 100 percent agreement and and for a very specific reason. I would think that it would be an easy trap to fall into as a writer or even directors or actors for that matter, that if you're having to show a scene where there are two people who knew each other in the past, but haven't seen each other in years, not like it's been, you know, four years after graduation, but I mean, we're talking like a stretch of time, two decades, right? You would, you would 
maybe make the wrong choice of having to overdo that relationship where they have to sit down and tell each other every single detail of their lives for the last 20 years in order to to establish that they have a connection. But the truth is, in life, it doesn't work like that. I've had friends that I have gone, let's just say, a decade without seeing. And if they if you were really close to them, it's it's just like you you were talking with them and got up to go to the bathroom and come back out and you just start up your conversation again. Like right. even with long time, you know, a long stretch of time between conversations or or just even being around each other. Usually, if you know the person, it you just kind of pick up quickly. And I love the fact that they did that, wasting so much time making us believe that they had a connection. Yeah. Even though I I don't know how much. How much are you under the impression that uh, that she had any sort of feelings for him when they were younger? I mean, we certainly know that that he had a crush on her. But do you think that she even paid much mind to him at all when they were yeah, younger? Uh, that is kind of one of the weird inconsistencies. There are a few inconsistencies in this movie, which are one of my complaints. And yeah, that is one where it's... He, yeah, you could definitely see how he would feel like this. Uh, but yeah, she was like dating someone else in high school. She's never like, oh, I just, you never talked to me. So I didn't know, you know, or anything like that. It just kind of seemed to be this weird, oh, finally he's back. I think, yeah, I think it's like, like- did she ever think she would see him again? He at least might have thought, if I ever return there, I know she's there still. But right. When someone leaves, no one's like, hmm, hopefully this person returns to my hometown. You forget about that person. Right, that, right, right. Um, yeah, and I think that, I think maybe it's helped a little bit by the fact that, and I'm not sure how well this is illustrated in the movie. It was done enough for me to get it, but I think maybe for other viewers, it, they, they might have needed a little bit more. You're given understand that by the time Corky gets to the cabin, he has achieved some sort of minor fame. Like, yeah, he's been on the Tonight Show. Yeah, he's he's probably people might see him and say, like, God, I know you from somewhere. Um, But he seems to have acquired some, you know, modest wealth uh, from this. You know, he's getting paid pretty good now. People recognize his face. So he's going back to her with and this might be one of his downfalls. Maybe he thinks that that he is worthy of her now because he does have a bit of this this fame or, or what have you, because it's. I don't think we're given to understand that he just picked the cat skills to go back to just as a place to chill out. I think he's got her on his mind. We, we That's not really illustrated in his journey there, yeah. but you have to know that he was, or at least when he gets there, he's like, where can I go? Yeah. And where can I find her? Yeah, yeah. That's the, but yeah. It, so, and, but and at this, the same time, I don't feel it's, it doesn't feel forced. Like I, I kind I like their relationship in this movie. I, I, yeah. it's, um, it just feels natural. She's just a very nice person. Um, so, you know, it, the, now the way their connection happens, like the, there's kind of a cool, this is a good scene when they, they, he does like a card trick for her, um, where he has to, like they like swap decks, they pick a card and then swap decks. And then he has to pick the card and he fucks it up the first time. And it's, it's like a very intense scene about him trying to pick this card. Um, which is apparently then what she falls head over heels into the, you right. know, cause she was just a part of the most stressful 
card trick of all time. <laughs> right. Because um, it's later revealed, uh, Fats kind of reveals that he does this trick a lot with women and makes it seem like they have a connection. So almost this trick is a con he uses with women. But I didn't get that from this scene. Like, I didn't get no, that at all. I didn't. I didn't at all to the point that I wondered if, if Fats was even making that up. Right. Um, I, I, I don't Just know. Just being it, a saboteur. Right. And we should we should go ahead and launch into the fact now it's it's one of I think one of the downfalls of this movie um, that but I think it's a really, really important topic to touch on. And that is when we are first introduced to the character of Corky, he does seem like a guy who has this strong desire to be a performer but utterly lacks the charisma, the charm, the stage presence, whatever it takes, that star quality that people call it, um, in, in front of a group of people. And uh, he kind of seems like the last guy that you would think would want to be a performer. Yeah. So as you said, that's why his, his mentor told him, hey, you need to get a, a shtick. You need to get something to make you relatable to an audience. But the, the issue that I have here is that the whole movie is centered on a sort of psychotic break with reality or, or the beginnings of a dissociative um, or disassociative break with reality tied to the use of fats, the dummy. Right. But the movie takes a real big jump from him just being a guy that has like anxiety in front of performance by the way, is probably about 90% of people out there. <laughs> yeah. If you, know, you don't do, have anxiety when you're performing or <laughs> nervous about the performance, like I, that, I feel like that goes with it. That's a, it's right. a design. It's not, I'm that, that anxiety is I want to give a good show. You know, right. uh, there and, are a few narcissists who are like, I'm nervous. Cause you know, okay, we're all narcissists. I hope people like me, but there are a, a very narrow few who only do it for themselves. Generally, when you get into performance, it is to, to make people feel good for a, a short amount of time. Right. Well, and, and the, the issue here is that in, in saying that, that he doesn't really, he's not really expressing any behavior that would come across as really concerning until he gets the dummy. But the movie jumps from him being kind of this failed card trick uh, club performer to him, you know, having some success on the club. It, you know, using the dummy now and now people are really loving him and his act is a hit. And then he and it's know, one year. It's yeah. like one year to the day almost. And we come to find out that he has such a connection with this dummy that he no longer can control himself. He he's his thoughts, his actions are now being sort of dictated by the personality of Fats the dummy, which sort of represents his id or his like most basic desire self. So it's kind of like Fats serves as the medium for all the things that he yeah. wish he wishes he could. he's a little more vulgar. Yeah. It kind of like uh, kind of like Fight Club. Sarcastic. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like Spoiler I mean alert all... for Fight Club. There is a ventriloquist <laughs> dummy. In. Yeah. It's it's an it's a mid-credit <laughs> sequence, you know. But uh but no, there's uh there's that that we get what we're given to understand, which we accept as a major psychological problem with this guy. 
But I and not only like, that he's been a failure, it was his first night and he bombed. Like, it's right. not like I've been doing this for years and I've, I've been unsuccessful. Like, he had, like, you know, I did Chicago improv. To, it, to gain that kind of success in a big city in a year is insane, especially yeah. from it's my first year. Yeah. Like, let alone getting that in a year, but it being your first year. Fuck you, dude. Yeah. How dare you go crazy? Let alone a ventriloquist on (laughs) top of everything. (laughs) Which was the missing ingredient. (laughs) Right. Because he's still just doing card tricks. And so here's the thing. If you had given me a scene where maybe he's so connected to this mentor, which they do a good job of illustrating that, that he has a very strong connection to Merlin, his mentor. But if you had told me maybe that or shown me that Merlin's death was so devastating to him that it kind of created these psychological problems, then that's at least a bridge to get to where he is or but he dies off screen. Or if you had shown me maybe the first meeting between fats and Corky, like show me when Corky first gets fats, show me sort of the seeds of this thing kind of coming along, uh, you know, gradually, but no, it just jumps right into, he's gone from being an anxiety ridden, you know, nervous performer to suddenly being, pretty much having multiple personality disorder. Yeah. Even if they had like an object or something that could bridge it, like, Oh, this is a pin that Merlin wore or something. And he puts it on fats or, you know, just anything like that, that bridges the two, but you're right. It just goes from like, I mean, you do kind of see, cause he recounts to Merlin his first night and he's like, Oh, it was great. Everything went great. But we're seeing the visual of just no one paying attention to him. And Merlin's like, well, you're full of shit. I don't believe you. And he's like, and he admits he's like you're right and i kind of yelled at them and he does he's like hey you guys aren't paying attention to me i put a lot of time into this and this is really good but in no way are you like oh he's knocking on the door of schizophrenia now right (laughs) yeah it's not even like half of the mental breakdown that tom hanks's character has in punchline where he sort of like has this meltdown on stage (laughs) actually a really great scene (laughs) brought up punchline two times now on the podcast (laughs) God, I should be getting checks from those people any fucking day now. God damn, somebody's got to mention them. Um, but no, it, it, now here's one thing I will say. It not, I won't say it in defense of the movie because they should have thought it through a little bit more. But I, I have not read the book Magic. I mean, I didn't even know about the movie, so I certainly <laughs> haven't read the book. But I'm given to understand that there very much is a supernatural element to Fats the Dummy in the book. Okay. So that so that there is something, um, I guess you would say, magical Magic. or supernatural about the dummy. Maybe it's possessed. I, I don't know. I haven't so read it. That is something I did like, especially the, uh, this is not the first time I saw it. But the first time I saw it, there is a unquestioned, like they never like introduce the supernatural into the movie. But just knowing the movie is called Magic. Uh, and then you have a doll that seems to be acting on its own. Um, there is, until a certain point, I did question like, oh, are they just going to reveal like this is like a haunted dummy or something? Like, I, that's fine if you want to do that. I'm, I'm cool with a movie taking a turn like that. Yeah. But it, there is a point where you're just like, I'm, I can't say for certain if he's not, if he's crazy or if this doll is real. 
Well, now I'll tell you something kind of interesting to go along with that. There is, there are, and I was wondering if it was just me, like an optical illusion, but I saw at least one, and I think it's probably two or three scenes where the dummy does move when Anthony Hopkins is nowhere near it. Now, in my research, I did find out that there is a scene where the dummy's eyes move. And so I knew that it wasn't just me. Yeah. And Richard Attenborough liked how it looked, so he kept it in. So maybe yeah. maybe he sort of liked the ambiguity of that. I mean, yeah, it's, I think it's that's something, ambiguous. Uh, yeah, I think that's something you can keep in because that does help with, oh, um, you know, maybe that's just a construct of, you know, maybe we're starting to see through right. Corky's eyes and, you know, that's how he views the doll. He does view it as something that talks all the time. Speaking of talking all the time, let's talk about, my favorite scene, probably if this scene, if this movie had a famous scene, this would be it. It's the five minute scene. Oh, yes. Because Burgess Meredith tracks him down. Um, uh, his name is Ben Green, but it's do they call him Gang Green or is that just a weird way Anthony Hopkins says Ben Green? No, it, uh, it's, it sounds like his nickname is Gang Green. Fats, that's Fats the dummy's joke. Like oh. he, he calls him Gang Green. It's okay. a play on his name. Okay. Yeah. Which I figured when I was just like, is that like his showbiz nickname? <laughs> <laughs> Which would make sense because Swifty Lazar hated the nickname Swifty. So I'm like, maybe they kind of did that where he's like, I have a nickname I hate. <laughs> Either way. Um Ben, I'm sure he, I'm sure he doesn't love gangrene. I mean, like, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, so but he shows up and he catches, you know, Corky and Fats having a conversation. And so it's just like, oh, so this is why you didn't want to take the medical exam. Right. Because you're you're far gone. He said, no, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. Corky's like, look, I want to get you the help that you need. But I can't do it if you're not going to like you know, meet me halfway or whatever. You have to admit you have a problem. He's like, I don't have a problem. And he's just like, all right, I just want you to do me one thing. Make fat shut up for five minutes. Uh, and he's like, no problem. And it's just a great, uh, not silent the whole time, but there are just nice long stretches of silence um, where, you know, it starts off, he's just like, this is easy. And finally, after like four minutes, he's just like, I can't do it. I yeah. cannot do it. Uh, such a good scene. And 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 just like Burgess Meredith in that scene where on his face, you could just like, it totally reads like, I knew that. I hate to see it. Um, you know, he knows this guy's career is over, like. So anything he's worked toward, yeah, anything he's worked toward promoting, like he's losing a lot too. Not a lot. I mean, as an agent, he has other clients, but, you know, still the work that he's invested into this guy's career and he wasn't honest with him. So he probably feels a little duped, like this guy tricked me, another magic trick. Um, And uh, so, so he has to, he kills him. Yes, he does. And at, at, at Fats, at Fats's request essentially. Yeah. And, but you're right though, that just to, to put a fine point on it. Yeah. Burgess Meredith is just outstanding in that scene. I mean, Anthony Hopkins is, is acting his balls off too, you know, uh, being frustrated with, with trying to suppress this urge within him, but you're right. It's 
you do get the impression that while Burgess Meredith is probably mostly concerned with with the business end of this, it's not like he says to him, um, how are we going to cover how, how are we going to cover this up? Right. Listen, this is what we're going to do. He says, like, we, we need to get you some help. We need you to you, we need you to talk to somebody. And so you really do get the impression that he does like, you know, Anthony Hopkins. Yeah. He likes Corky. He cares about him. him. But at the but same yet, time, he knows he's just this ventriloquist guy. Like, right, right. So yeah, I also it's, have some real actors that I, I represent. Yeah, <laughs> represent and, the but, former president of the United States. Right, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and, uh, yeah, possibly another great actor <laughs> in his own right. Yeah. Um, but uh, but yeah, a uh, it's a really really great scene, and we get into what would be probably not the only, but in some ways, the most memorable death scene. There aren't many of them in this movie. Um, yeah, the killing of Burgess Meredith's character. And um, how, how did you feel about that? Before we get into it and dissect it, what'd you think of that scene? I mean, it's, uh, I liked it. It's it's brutal because you you feel the weight of it because he, he essentially bludgeons him with fats. Uh, yeah. And like I said before, Burgess Meredith is barely larger than this doll. So just the idea of that bulbous, solid head that, you know, has probably a lot of metal in it because the face is able to be very animated. So there's probably a lot of shit packed in there. Um, yeah, just getting bludgeoned by that doll. It's done artfully, you know, it's not, yeah. this isn't Tom Savini where his skull is crushing in and blood spraying out of it, you know. Um, there are parts, yeah, it's... it's it's funny. It's funny. I mean, it's there is that brutal quality to it, but it's also a little funny it's because funny. as he's swinging fats at um, Burgess Meredith, it's you don't just see him like from a wide shot swinging and and hitting him. You it cuts to Fats's face like flying through the air, like as he's getting closer. So it's you can have a little fun watching <laughs> it. It's it's a good time. But the funniest part. The and I laughed out loud at this is that okay, so Anthony Hopkins' character has really fucking lost it now. He just killed his manager, he just committed murder, he's got blood all over him, and he's not sure what he's gonna do. And here we hear Peggy calling from the main house out to him about what he wants for dinner, and she says. Do you want the asparagus tips or the green beans? And he is like frantic. He's just murdered someone. And he's like, what? And she goes, asparagus tips or green beans? And then he, he, you know, the sweet Anthony Hopkins actually thinks it through. And he's like, uh, asparagus tips. <laughs> like He actually makes a dining choice right. after just having murdered somebody. Like you expect him to be like, I don't care. And like go into the cab and slam the door. But no, he makes a conscious choice. He, he wants asparagus tips. Which I would have picked too. I was like, good choice. Yeah, no, it was <laughs> hysterical. It was, that a, was great a good part right there. Uh, and he tries dragging him out to the lake, which he's still alive. Poor Burgess Meredith dies twice in this movie. Yeah. And, and you know what? It apparent like, yeah, this this man just cannot be killed. It's it. We think it's almost three times. And um, and it's it's kind of funny, too, because something that I read an, an interesting little anecdote is that not only could you not kill Burgess Meredith, he had the strength that his character to keep coming back. But apparently the director said that um, 
Anthony Hopkins would get noticeably worse after every take. Like he would lose steam, he would lose strength. And Burgess Meredith only got better with every single take. Oh. Um, so kind of kind of an interesting juxtaposition of of uh of talent there. But um, but yeah, Burgess Meredith, I mean, he's been bludgeoned with the ventriloquist dummy, he's been drowned in a lake, and even after that, when he's found on the shore, they say. I, he might be alive. <laughs> right. and you're like, no, not a not a fucking third time. Yeah, then kill him now. Put right. him out of his misery. Yes. Yeah, this is where it needed to turn into an actual slasher. Like somebody start cutting his limbs off. Like, let's just be done with this. Right. But um, but no, that's, yeah, that's almost I guess three kills in this movie because he does kill Burgess Meredith twice. Yes. <laughs> well, four, because he well, like, right. <laughs> And and this is where we start to get um, after uh, the uh, the agent's death. This is where we start to get introduced to Peggy's husband's character, Duke. Yeah. Um, apparently, you know, just spitting image of uh, of James Dean. Uh, <laughs> Mister comes cool back. Himself. Yeah, comes back and he is kind of exactly who we think he would be. He he drinks too much. He's he's jealous. He's paranoid, I guess, probably for good reason. Yeah, because they have slept together now. Yes. And then yeah. he shows up. And um, this actor, you know, he you'd recognize him uh, is from a great many things, even though you might not be able to pick it out. But but you're going to recognize this actor. And he always usually plays people who are kind of pissed off about something. And yeah. so he does a great job. And he has a real just turn on a dime scene when he rows Anthony Hopkins out into the lake and he wants to have the conversation. You think it's all going to be about him confronting Corky, uh, Anthony Hopkins, about sleeping with his wife. And then he just very sort of like, sympathetically just kind of pleads for help because he thinks that Peggy's not interested in him anymore. Right. And it's, and it's like just a real nice about face there that it's like, Oh, this guy is not just an asshole, you know? Yeah. And he's genuinely concerned about the health of his relationship. And yeah, so like, it's, Look it's a at nice, me. I think you're boning my wife. I must be crazy. Yeah, Look at I, you. I, I just I don't like James Dean. Yeah, I just don't have a lot of people to ask for advice around here. I'm in a rural area, you know, um, but, but yeah, so he kind of comes across as more of a sympathetic character at that point. And, and we get another death. Um, so now Anthony Hopkins is really on a roll. And I think it's at this part of the movie that things begin to move at a little bit more of a recognizable quote unquote horror pace. Mm -hmm. um, some people will complain that this movie doesn't move fast enough, uh, you know, for the horror label. Um, I don't know if it's so much a pacing issue is that it's just a different kind of movie. It's, it's very much a, a drama. Yeah. Um, and, and so dramas move a little bit slower, but by the time we get to Duke and the confrontation and the sort of tension in the air, because Duke is pretty sure something's going on, things are moving pretty quickly. Yeah, because he it, comes in and he searches Corky's cabin, finds uh, uh, Fats's old wig that's caked in blood, and then uh, I think he hear he like thinks the doll moves. So as he goes to look at it, and this is the point where the the veil is kind of lifted, because there's a 
moment where the dummy, like it looks like the dummy stabs Duke and you're like, oh shit, it is a magic dummy. But then Anthony Hopkins steps out, like literally steps out from behind the curtain showing that he is the one who stabbed him. So it's almost like he's so far gone, you know, he can't just kill like he, you know, he used Corky to kill, I guess, but it didn't look like Corky was killing Ben Green, you know what I'm saying? But now he's like so far gone, he almost has to be hiding and use Corky with a knife or use Fats with a knife. Know what right. I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, he's he's it's just another way of expressing that that it is, you know, Corky living out his most base desires uh through uh through fats. And and I mean it's it's the most literal way that you can show that. But it's pretty cool. It's it's I, I think it's kind of it, it's effective. Yeah. And um and you know, because like we've talked about, fats is in his own way, despite being a like two and a half foot tall wooden dummy, is kind of intimidating and creepy in his own way. And and he continues to be sort of funny. Like there's there's this really weird line that he gives when um after Burgess Meredith has been killed the first time. And uh, Corky has to take um, uh, Mer- uh, Burgess Meredith out into the lake to sort of sink his body into the lake. Fats from the cabin just says, do it beautifully. <laughs> <laughs> like, what? Do it beautifully. <laughs> I missed that. That's awesome. Oh, yeah. It's such a, such a strange way to put it's it. It's a cool but- scene, too, because he's got pretty much Fats prep, propped up in the window. So he's just like watching him yeah. to sink this body in the lake. And so now Duke's gone. But in, and he's like, uh, Duke, uh, he tells Peggy Sue, he's like, look, he tried to like trick me into saying that we slept together and then he got mad and he went hunting and I haven't seen him. But um, I think we should run off together. Let's do that right now. <laughs> right. And she's like, I'm down, but I got to tell Duke. So there is kind of like a dragged out scene where he like goes into her house and he's like trying to get her to come. And she's like, I can't do it yet. Um, and so I think he just, uh, he kind of thinks like, well, I'm just not getting anything I want. I've killed two people now. And he stabs himself in the stomach off screen. He like comes back into the cabin and is talking to Fats. And then he kind of reveals he's got He's like, well, it's Fats. I think I'm dying. And you see he's got this bloody stomach. And Fats is like, how'd you do that? I think I stabbed myself, you know. So it's almost like he didn't even know he was doing it. Right, at least right. that's how it's implied. Um, so, yeah, he just dies with Fats in his cabin. And poor Peggy Sue is left. Now she's oh, yeah, got to run. The, now she's got to run a haunted hotel, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, and that's the that's the worst part about it too, is because like she, you know, she finally has come to her senses about this guy, and he he realizes that you know she's never going to love him or or go off with him the way that he wants her to. And then as he's dying, she actually does come out of the house and yeah, she's, she's like, like I'm, I'm ready. I've changed my mind. Let's go. <laughs> the heck with it. Let's go. And, um, and, and now he's already dying. So, you know, we get that little, little bit that we're left with, but yeah, it's, um, I, I've, 
I feel like overall, uh, you know, this you're not going to be any better or worse for having seen this movie. You know, you're not it's it's certainly not a waste of time. It might drag in parts. The one thing that I this is a little bit more from a, a nitpicky part, but. Did you pay much attention to the music at all? It's it scored by yes. Jerry Goldsmith. I thought it was great. And and yeah, and Jerry Goldsmith has, I mean, we're talking Poltergeist. We're talking um, Alien. Um, he's also, oh God, what was the other one he did? Oh, Gremlins. We're talking about genre movies that the music is a huge part of the effectiveness of the movie. Yeah. The only thing that I, I would was, say this is good, but not memorable. Like it's, it doesn't pop out to you. Right. And the only thing that I was a little bit, I don't know, I, I don't know if I cared for it necessarily, was that this movie is sort of scored like a 50s movie where there's a lot of score, yes. like every single scene has scoring. And some of the like love scenes have it gets a little schmaltzy. Um, but uh, love that 70s switch to the handheld when during the love scene, yeah, where it becomes that weird shaky cam kind of thing, right? So 70s, man, yeah, it, you know, you're right though, that is that is definitively that time period because it's like it's like they're right on the verge of POV porn, but they just can't get, like put their finger on it yeah, yet. The equipment like, is just still too bulky, you're right, <laughs> but uh, but no, it's. It's, you know, it, it, I think the movie is fun. I think there's enough stuff to laugh at intentionally. There's enough stuff to kind of, that's kind of funny unintentionally. But then there's also a lot of of quality in that. It's something that that was my first impression of this movie when I sat down to watch it is that, wow, this is not a teens running around in the woods level of filmmaking and and we all know that i love those movies but you can tell as soon as you sit down you're like oh this is a real movie <laughs> like this <laughs> right. is, you know it's it's done with a, a level of refinement that you don't normally find in in horror and so, if this were made today they'd they'd find a way to cram like two or three more kills in there yeah yeah i i think so i mean it's um it's probably it's probably best enjoyed by somebody that would like um, like maybe Hitchcock movies or yeah. Agatha Christie uh, mysteries. The kills in this movie are out of necessity, for lack of a better word. It's not mindless slaughter. Yes. As, right. you're, as per want in your normal horror movie. Yeah, and I, I think that... Um, that that's that's how it's best gone about like maybe if you have somebody that likes love stories and they like dramas or psychological thrillers um and and they don't mind a little bit of blood like they'll be fine with this yeah um but to sit down and and really have like a slasher hound like somebody that just loves intestines and slashing and yeah. cleavers and chainsaws but probably probably not going to give you enough of what you're looking for, but, um, but great performances throughout. Um, I like, we, we've, we've touched on how good Anthony Hopkins is. I do think that there are a couple parts where he's a little shrill. Um, he kind of goes for more of the anger, uh, as he's sort of, you know, struggling as opposed to more of a, a sympathetic delivery, Yeah. but, um, but he's still great in it. And I mean, Am I wrong? Like he's doing some magic on screen. Oh like, yeah, he said he's like I. He's like I. 
I loved doing this movie. It's like I got to learn sleight of hand. I got to learn ventriloquism and they paid me to do it. Like he got to learn all these cool things. Right. So yeah, he does all the card tricks or him doing them. Yeah. So no, I mean, it's and some it's, of the ventriloquism. I know some of it's ADR. Like I'm sure he did not learn to do great ventriloquism while he's drinking a glass of water, you know, like that <laughs> shit's edited in, but there are parts and I, I don't know how much of it it was ADR, but he's at least putting the effort in where like you see the bottom of the chin, like where the the tongue, you know, where you can see that fluctuate. Yeah. Like he's at least doing that. He's at least acting. I'm sure he's trying to do as much ventriloquism because he's a good, well-trained actor. So I'm sure he's putting forth the effort. Um, And he does do the voice of Fats. Like, you know, that that is, and he does a really good job of, of modulating his voice so that it, it really does sound like a distinctly different character. Um, So no. And his accent works as someone who is American, but might have been raised by someone English. Right. And they, they made a point of mentioning that in the movie. (laughs) Yes. It's just a real, it works great. Like that's all you have to do. You you just, just give me enough. We talk about this all the time. Like why can't somebody just set up, this maybe you have an aspect of your film that is a little unbelievable or a little confusing. Give one line is all you need to just have it make sense. And Burgess Meredith's character said, I think his dad was a limey, uh, meaning British. Right. So that that's all you need. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah. So recommend. Yes, this is a this is a rainy Sunday afternoon watch, not a wild and crazy Saturday night party with your horror mm, friends. Definitely Just a not. nice, you know, you want you want a good, interesting story. Yes, I would yeah. recommend it. You like Anthony Hopkins. You're like, let's check out some of his older work. It's totally <laughs> worth it for everyone in it. Yeah, I recommend too. Uh, excellent. All right, cool. Well, that was 1978's Magic. Tim, next week. We're going to tackle a movie I'd never heard of ever uh, from 2008. It's a British comedy horror called The Cottage. Yeah, pretty exciting. This is uh, it's at least the first time that I can think of that we've done this. It was a decision to cover a movie based purely on its trailer. I knew (laughs) nothing about it either. I saw the trailer and I'm like, that looks like a lot of fun. I want to watch that. Yeah. So. We'll see if it actually lived up to the trailer or not. So that's coming up next. Uh, please follow us on Instagram at Slumber Podcast Massacre. Our email is slumberpodcast at gmail.com. Tim, I'm reminded of an email we got uh, not too long ago asking about these movies and the Beck passes the Bechdel test. We should point out Magic does not pass the Bechdel test. Be- Magic doesn't even have two female characters to attempt to pass the Bechdel test. So unfortunately magic does not pass the bechdel test but please email us at slumberpodcast at gmail.com our patreon patreon.com slash slumber podcast massacre a huge thanks to all our patrons for uh helping make the show possible and uh, that's gonna wrap it up tim do you got anything else to say about magic well it might not have passed that test but if you're considering if you consider ventriloquist dummies a marginalized group like there is finally some representation there of ventriloquist dummies. So I'm, I'm happy for that. And uh, no, I, uh, if there was one line that really stuck out with me uh, in this movie, there's, it's just classic Burgess Meredith and there's nobody else that you would want to say this line. It's just one word, but at, at some point he's remarking on Corky's talent and he just goes, send fucking sational.
It was great. I just, I literally wrote that word down on a notebook. Send fucking sensational. Perfect. All right, Timmy. See you later. Sounds like a plan. Bye, Andrew. Bye.